Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who are joining us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, for our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions now or at any time in the future, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Welcoming our guest and leading our program this afternoon is John Malcolm. Mr. Malcolm serves as Vice President for our Institute for Constitutional Government. He is Director of the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and also the Ed Gilbertson and Sherry Lindbergh Gilbertson Senior Legal Fellow. Please join me in welcoming John Malcolm. John. Thank you, John, and welcome everybody to Heritage. Uh, We are here today to discuss an important topic which is the role that congressional oversight plays in our system of checks and balances and separation of powers. Our founding fathers certainly understood the need for each branch of government to be on their guard against the accretions of power by the other two branches of government. As James Madison famously said in Federalist Number 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But since Madison well knew that men were not angels and never would be, he added, ambition must be made to counteract ambition, and vigorous congressional oversights is one of the keys to making sure that that happens. After all, if Congress is going to pass laws and appropriate funds in order to run the government, Congress and the people whom they represent have a right to know how those laws are being implemented and whether those funds are being well spent. On the other hand, the executive branch does focus on a number of sensitive issues, including ongoing criminal uh, and national security investigations that ought to remain free from political influence. And it's also important that executive branch officials feel free to be completely open and candid in their views, even when some of those views may be politically unpopular, without an undue fear of public disclosure that might be personally embarrassing. As the Supreme Court stated in the seminal case of United States versus Nixon, the privilege is fundamental to the operation of government and inextricably rooted in the separation of powers under the Constitution. There's always been considerable tension between the legislative and executive branches when determining how far Congress should be allowed to go in exploring the inner workings of the executive branch and perhaps to a slightly lesser degree, the judicial branch. Here to offer his perspectives on this issue is one of the Senate's champions of robust oversight, Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa. Senator Grassley has had a long and distinguished career. He received his bachelor's degree and a master's degree from the University of Northern Iowa and a PhD from the University of Iowa. 
He was first elected to the Iowa legislature in 1958 and to the House of Representatives, the U.S. House of Representatives, in 1974. Since 1981, he has served the citizens of Iowa and indeed the rest of the nation as a United States senator. Senator Grassley has long been considered a champion of government oversight and transparency and has often been referred to as the patron saint of whistleblowers. He is currently the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, where his fervent belief in the need for robust oversight has been on full display as of late. Please join me in welcoming Senator Chuck Grassley. Thank you for a kind introduction, and if I can make just one little correction, because I don't want to be uh, misleading here, I was elected to the legislature while I was in the middle of that Ph.D. crusade I was on, so I'm one of those people that almost, you see, it's a, pri- it's a privilege to be here with you. Uh, in 1980, that's before most of you were born, uh, the... Uh, I was elected to the United States Senate, and during my early years in the United States Senate, I met a man who had a significant impact on my career. His name was Arthur Ernest Ernest Fitzgerald, but everyone called him Ernie. I call him the father of whistleblowers. This is an original that we got from the Library of Congress, and we blew it up. But this is Ernie Fitzgerald. This is the famous... $700 toilet seat that was uh, really representative of defense waste in the 1980s when I early got involved in in, uh, oversight and whistleblowing. Um, He was called Ernie. Uh, You've probably uh, never heard of him. Uh, If you did, Ernie's reputation preceded him even way back before I knew him. In 1968, Ernie testified before Senator William Proxmire's Joint Economic Committee about the Air Force C-5 transport uh, aircraft program. That testimony changed Ernie's life and brought a lot of attention to whistleblowers. The C-5 aircraft was an important military priority, but it took longer and cost more than planned. The government did not want anybody to know that. Although he knew it might damage his career, Ernie testified before Congress that this prize program cost the taxpayers $2 billion more than the Pentagon would admit. $2 billion, that was 1968. In today's dollars, that would be more than $14.5 billion. Ernie's audacity... To commit truth earned him the absolute fury of the President of the United States. The famous Nixon tapes revealed that the President himself ordered his subordinates in the White House to get rid of that SOB. That's a direct quote from the tapes. They did. And Ernie spent the next 14 years fighting for his professional life. In fact, he only had his job at the Pentagon until he retired because of a court order. Time and again, Mr. Fitzgerald resisted the Pentagon's never-ending effort to sideline him and end his career. From the fight that they put up, 
you would have thought the Defense Department was facing down a mortal enemy, whatever we ask Ernie to come to the Capitol Hill. At a, I had to go to the Pentagon once myself in 1985 to serve him a subpoena just so that he could testify before my subcommittee. Ernie's work and life have greatly inspired this senator. His entire time in government, Ernie relentlessly pursued the facts and courageously told the truth. When he retired, I said that of him. Uh, Ernie's work was about keeping faith with the taxpayers. That's what oversight is all about, keeping faith. Keeping faith with the taxpayers, keeping faith with we the people. It means working as hard as you can to give people confidence that their government either plays by the rules or is held accountable. Just in the last two weeks, my committee has pulled out all the stops to shine a light on waste and misconduct in the other branches. Last week, we took the, we looked at the Department of Justice Inspector General's finding of political bias uh, and misconduct in law enforcement. This week, uh, before we looked, the week before that, we took testimony from witnesses who described the failures of the judicial branch to address sexual harassment claims. We can learn a lot about what oversight is and what it means from these efforts, and there will be a lot more material to study before the summer's out. But for now, I'd like to start with the basics. When we enter elective office, we take an oath. The oath that we take is a solemn promise to defend the Constitution of the United States. That document is the source of our rule of law and the guarantee of our liberties. The Constitution establishes separation of powers in three branches, over which the people, of course, are sovereign. To ensure that authority remains with the people, the Constitution also diffuses power between and among the branches. We call that checks and balances. Another word, as far as I'm concerned, for oversight. This structure wasn't by mistake. Madison, as you quoted, and I'll quote a little bit differently, and other framers had a long history with unchecked ambition and undivided authority. They called it George III. They knew the natural tendency of those who had power to seek more, often at the expense of principle, sense, and the general welfare. So they designed a system where the same institution is never entrusted to write the law, interpret its meaning, and enforce the consequences if it's violated. And each institution has tools to check the other. By design, the system invites conflict as each branch inquires of, negotiates with, and grates against the others. In the words of James Madison, ambition works to counteract ambition. It's this system that sustains the delicate balance between and among each branch of government. And it's that branch 
that the framers believed would be best secured, respect for the rule of law, and ensure accountability to the people. Regretfully, today, this balance has shifted. Today, we live under a government that the framers would not recognize. We have become a nation that is no longer governed by congressional action enforced by the president and interpreted by the courts. Today, we're ruled more and more by excessive regulation and executive fiat. Worse, we've done little to prevent our system of separated powers from yielding itself to the sweeping authority of federal agencies and what many call, and rightfully so, the administrative state. We cannot blame political ideology. Under Democrats and Republicans, the administrative state has only expanded and has grown at the expense of congressional authority and prestige. We have sacrificed our constitutional mandate on the twin alders of efficiency and expertise. We've moved from a government by and for the people to government by the bureaucrats and the connected insiders. I'm afraid that we're ex- that we're experiencing what James Madison warned about in Federalist 62 when he wrote about the dangers of churning out so many murky, burdensome rules. He warned about, quote, the unreasonable advantage it gives to the sagacious, the enterprising, and the moneyed few for the industrialist and uniform mass of the people, end of quote. The modern administrative state is a good deal for Congress, which can pass bills with lofty goals and take credit while agencies sort out the details that Congress doesn't want to deal with or doesn't know how to deal with. It also is a good deal for special interests and well-connected corporations who can afford to sort through scores of regulations published each year, an advantage that small business doesn't have. But it's a rotten deal for the American people. It's a rotten deal for the farmers, the small business owners, and the job creators across the country who are burdened by piles of regulation and left wondering whether where to turn to for the relief. Consider these statistics. The 114th Congress, 329 bills became law. But during the same period, the Obama administration finalized more than twice as many rules and regulations. And that doesn't count guidance, cons- documents, or other forms of agency action, some of which have the same impact as regulation. Not intended to, do, but seem to. By some estimates, regulation place a great weight on the economy of nearly $2 trillion in compliance costs. Unfortunately, we in the Congress enable this. We authorize enormous, intrusive government programs and give agencies the money and the staff to run them. It's no wonder there are more than 180,000 pages of administrative regulations. I'm glad that President Trump has taken uh, made cutting the regulatory burden, one of his top priorities. 
but lasting reform is going to require some significant structural changes. Think about this. More than 2 million people work for the federal government. That does not even include contractors and active-duty military personnel. According to a 2015 study, the actual size of the government workforce is estimated at more than 9 million. And remember what I said about the tendency of those with power to seek more power. That seems to be the primary purpose of a non-elected bureaucrat. These folks fight tooth and nail to safeguard their pet programs even when the programs don't work. I have seen evidence of agency leaders ordering subordinates to spend money that they don't need just so they can justify having it in the first place. Clearly, Congress needs to exercise more scrutiny over taxpayers' money, not less. Part of the problem is that we are not passing individual appropriation bills on schedule like uh, Congress used to. In fact, we've only met the deadline set in the Congressional Budget Office four times since that law was passed in 1974. Instead, we pass omnibus bills that obscure critical issues and make it difficult to cut the fat. Wasteful programs and projects just hum right along, sucking up valuable taxpayer dollars and providing little value in return. Despite all of this, you might still wonder if giving the agencies more leeway is such a bad thing. What's the real harm in a few padded programs? But government bloat is not a victimless crime. The more we tip the constitutional scale, the less accountable government will be to the people who are sovereign. This gradual surrender of authority to executive piles on to the logistical challenges that Congress always faces. As I noted earlier, millions of people work in the executive branch. Two of them are elected by the people, and there are often many layers of folks between the elected executives and the unelected bureaucrats making the critical decisions. This means that there's a lot of distance between the everyday decision-makers and the ultimate source of authority, again, the American people. By contrast, legislators in Congress are directly accountable to the people. We receive their feedback during elections, and every day by email, by phone, and in person. But for five, 535 elected members of Congress, there are only about 16,000 supporting staff. That means that we have less than 17,000 people to counteract the ambitions of more than 2 million in the executive branch. And this isn't an argument for hiring more uh, congressional employees. We have to work very hard to craft smart legislation and even harder to reach consensus. consensus. Meanwhile, unelected bureaucrats can make decisions that contradict and ignore the clear and hard-won intent of the Congress. That can happen through the regulatory process or just because some agency lawyer said so. For example, the Government Accountability Office found that President Obama's EPA engaged in unlawful covert propaganda, and those words come from the report, 
through its aggressive use of social media to drum up support for the waters of the U.S. rule. In fact, EPA actions violated clear prohibitions that Congress had put in place. And in 2015, the Office of Legal Counsel single-handedly overturned a critical provision in the Inspector General's Act. It said that Congress did not mean what it said in that act, that inspectors generals should have access to all the records they need to do their job. So Congress had to pass another law to say what we meant when we passed that law in the first place. The, the, the law I'm referring to, last Congress, the Inspector General's Empowerment Act, clarified that the inspectors general should have access to all records, notwithstanding any other law. So how do we hold these bureaucrats accountable to the rule of law and then to the sovereignty of the American people? How do we keep the constitutional scale from tipping too far? The answer is quite obvious. Oversight. Congress doing its constitutional job to see that the executive branch uh, faithfully executes the laws. Article 1 of the Constitution vests all legislative power in the Congress of the United States. The Congress's power to conduct uh, investigations is inherent with, their, with this grant of legislative power. The Supreme Court has long recognized this. In McGrain versus Dartery, it wrote that, quote, a legislative body cannot legislate wisely or effectively in the absence of information respecting the conditions which the legislation is intended to affect or change, end quote. For these reasons, the Supreme Court has also recognized that Congress's power of inquiry is very broad and fully enforceable. The court in McGrain also noted that, quote, mere requests for information often are unavailing, so some means of compulsion are essential to obtain what is needed, end of quote. The court has even ruled <clears throat> that Congress can require testimony even when it may be relevant uh, to another proceeding, like even a court case. Oversight isn't just the responsibility of committees or their chairman, although their leadership and expertise is very important. Oversight is a responsibility of each and every member of Congress, whether it's majority or minority. Each member is a constitutional officer. He or she was elected to represent and cast votes in the interests of their constituents. Each member needs accurate information from the executive branch in order to make informed decisions of all sorts. I tell every new member of the Senate that I talk to, I said, remember, it takes 51 votes, sometimes 60 votes around here to pass a bill. It only takes one vote to do oversight. So you don't have to ask anybody else's permission to do it. Oversight takes many forms. Individual members or committees can send letters, request hearings, and hold, request briefings, hold hearings. They might request documents or interviews. Most of the time, recipients comply with the Congressional Oversight request voluntarily. Usually, the member or committee is willing to discuss or negotiate the scopes of a request and reach a, an accommodation with the agency. 
In fact, that's the way that members and committees prefer to work. No matter what the media says, the goal is to get the information not, not put on a show. Of course, every nominee who comes into my office says they will answer my oversight request in a timely fashion. But then they get confirmed, and they must get amnesia, because all too often I don't hear back from them as quickly as I should. Sometimes I don't hear back at all. Sometimes I advise them now when they come before the committee that maybe they'd just be more honest to say instead of saying yes, say maybe. When a witness does not comply, we have subpoenas, of course. And, of course, it's easier if the Democrats recognize when those were necessary. At least that's my experience in, in the recent days. In any case, a committee often issues a subpoena only after it has attempted to get the information voluntarily, and those efforts have failed. I think you see this in the House of Representatives with the Justice Department right now. I think we are seeing that play out as that example I just gave you. I've seen it before, too, during the Fast and Furious investigation. The executive branch stalled and hid behind bogus, vague, privileged claims that had nothing to do with the presidential communications, yet they declared presidential privilege. Eventually, a court ordered them to turn over documents to the House committee. They admitted that thousands of pages of withheld documents were never privileged at all. In our investigation of political interference in the 2016 election, the agencies resisted providing some information because they claimed it threatened national security. Much of that information is now declassified, and it demonstrates those concerns were merely hot air. Unfortunately, the executive branch does not always respect even a congressional subpoena. You hear that a little bit now again in the House of Representatives. The documents it withheld from Congress during the Fast and Furious were the subject to a subpoena. The efforts to enforce it took seven years. Failure to provide the documents led the House to hold the former Attorney General in contempt and take him to court. But it wasn't until this year when President Obama and his team had left office that additional documents were finally provided. It's clear that Congress cannot blindly trust the executive branch to make and enforce rules or to comply with its request for information. And it also cannot de de depend on the judicial branch to give full effect to its oversight authority. It ta takes too long, and the courts don't always get, get it right. The legislative branch then must step up to the plate and reassert its constitutional authority. We need a package of rules and legislative changes that draw on Congress's own strength. We need to change the default from one of dodge and delay to democratic accountability. I've been working with my colleagues on proposals to carry out some of these ideas. Meanwhile, as Congress seeks help from the other branches to do its job, whistleblowers are working hard to hold the government accountable. It's our job to protect and empower whistleblowers. You know, once again referring to Ernie Fitzgerald was not the first whistleblower. 
blowing the whistle on misconduct and working to protect those who do it is older than our republic. In 1777, ten brave soldiers aboard the warship Warren reported wrongdoing by their commanding officer. In reprisal, they were slapped with a criminal libel suit. On July the 30th, 1778, the Continental Congress shut down those shenanigans, that lawsuit against them. It made clear that it was the duty of citizens, quote, in service to the United States to give the earliest information to Congress of any misconduct, fraud, or misdemeanors, end of quote. So whistleblowing is a time-honored tradition in this country. It's deeply patriotic and thoroughly American. The framers knew that to hold on to their democracy, they would need not just a well-informed structure, but also a virtuous citizenry. That's where the whistleblowers come in. They keep the government honest. If we want to have the kind of government the framers envision, they must be protected. Whistleblowers have to be able to share their message according to law, to the right people, in a way that keeps them and the rest of us safe. That means that we have to be able to report outside their agency and, if necessary, to the Congress without fear or reprisal. There's still a lot of room for improvement in the whistleblower protection laws, although we have made much progress since I joined the Congress. The better protections they have, the more likely whistleblowers will come forward. Believe me, we can't do our constitutional duty of oversight without good whistleblowing. The good news is that there are more folks like Ernie Fitzgerald out there. These whistleblowers know what's really behind the agency talking points. They can tell you when Congress is being lied to or getting part of the story only. They know where to find waste, fraud, and abuse. And these brave men and women are risking their reputations and their careers every day to do what the only crime Ernie Fitzgerald said that whistleblowers do is commit truth. And that's what whistleblowers are doing. Just committing truth, but ruining themselves maybe professionally for doing it. But in the process, holding Congress or holding a government accountable. By entrusting these truth tellers to expose wrongdoing and corruption, we can bring transparency and accountability to our institution. By working with them to conduct rigorous oversight, we can restore the public trust in our government. The whistleblowers are keeping faith with the taxpayers. Then the question must be asked, are we keeping that faith? Thank you. So the senator has time for a few questions. I would ask you to uh, raise your hand, wait for a microphone to arrive, then briefly announce who you are, and please keep it short and have it be a question. All right, let's start down here. Thank you, Senator. Uh, my name is Ryan Piranunzi. I'm uh, from uh, Common Cause. I was wondering if you could speak to the current um, 13 investigations, the last count, into uh, Scott Pruitt's um, 
uh, tenure at the EPA, uh, including his, um, yeah. Yeah, his, you're aware of them. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I assume that there's other committees. I'm not doing some oversight there, except uh, it deals with ethanol, but that's not, that's more just a policy issue than it is uh, oversight, but I keep pressure on. Uh, here's what I've said personally on this. Uh, other people have taken some strong positions, but I've said to the news media that daily ask me about this, almost daily ask me about it, that I'm going to wait until the ethics people get done. That would be if they come up very negatively in, in, even in one serious case, I guess there's, as you said, about 13. I wouldn't say they'd have to find something wrong in all 13 cases before I say he should go. But uh, uh, right now, my problem with him is not carrying out a promise that, that the president made on, on alternative energy. Seth Weisberg, a citizen from Houston, Texas. I appreciate what you're saying about oversight, and you said that the um, feet dragging by the administrative state had grown over, the, over your illustrious career. Um, and now I know you're working very hard even to get people in the administrative state to give you information, and they're withholding it and playing a press game. How would the Chevron deference make a difference? How can you make the tilt the uh, tide of power that's slipping away from Congress. Well, I'm glad to know that uh, recent uh, couple court decisions, even the Supreme Court has uh, indicated that they ought to take another look at Chevron. I am a co-author of a bill with uh, Senator Hatch to do away with Chevron, or in other words, uh, not give as much deference to administrative uh, expertise as the courts would give and uh, not indicated. And I don't know whether it was ever indicated in the case of writing the, the various pieces of regulatory legislation that uh, the courts now defer to. I think it's kind of a case of uh, the Supreme Court legislating. And uh, that's why, if uh, unless they overrule themselves, then we have a checks and balances of changing the law. But you probably know that for... Uh, Progressives in this town and in, in the Congress, it's uh, going to be difficult to get bipartisan support to do that. Hi, Senator. Um, Kat Lucero with MLEX U.S. Tax Watch. What are your plans for IRS oversight now that the tax reform bill has passed and you're going to have a new, um, possibly new commissioner coming in? Well, I think the answer to your question would have nothing to do with the tax bill, except as that tax bill changes policy and are they following our policy? That's part of oversight. But I think you get more problems with oversight with the, with the, uh, the way IRS acts towards certain taxpayers, particularly small business versus, uh, uh, versus major corporations. Um, and, and going back to 1998 when I served on the study committee that rewrote some of these laws and I think did some good for a certain period of time, I think we're back at a point where the intimidation of the IRS towards small business is getting worse. So it isn't, it, it, it can be done through oversight, 
but there's also a very much need for some legislation that's introduced, and I think maybe legislation that's even passed the House. I don't know for sure if it passed the House, but it's it's very top on the agenda of the Ways and Means Committee and the Finance Committee, and if we get other tax bills, we will probably include some uh, uh, taxpayer bill of rights provisions in it. And by the way, uh, we, you know, you do this a little bit at a time. So I think we had some uh, taxpayer bill of rights provisions in the tax bill we passed before Christmas. I recall. Uh, let me ask a question. I'm curious. In, in terms of occasional overreaching by agencies, do you think that uh, Congress should make more robust usage of the Congressional Review Act? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and we are. Now, you know, prior to this administration, it had only been used once and maybe attempted two or three other times, but never successful. And so it's been successful, I think, 16 times this year. But I think a better thing would be if uh, if the uh, acronym, oh, I can't think of Here, Here's how it works. I just can't think of the name of the bill. Anyway, we need to write legislation so that any major rule, and a major rule evidently is anything that costs the economy more than $100 million a year. The Marines, the Marines Act. Yeah, the Marines Act. We need to pass this, so any rule like that would have to be submitted to Congress, and we would have to pass it for it to go into effect. This would uh, be particularly uh, very helpful, particularly where Congress might not have expertise to make final decisions, and you do leave a lot to the bureaucracy, like let's say on scientific or health issues or something like that, uh, then we could we could look at it when it comes back, and we would have the final say on it. And then when we're uh, when we're uh, chastised by our constituents for passing bad law that brings even worse bad regulation, at least we would have the final say on whether that meets our intent. So I'm very much in favor of the Reins Act. Uh, thank you, Senator. I'm a reporter from Hong Kong Phoenix TV. Uh, what's your view on President Trump recently saying um, he has the power to pardon himself? Well, I think uh, what you maybe heard me quote in the paper to this effect. If I were President of the United States and somebody said I had the power to pardon myself, I'd get a new lawyer. Uh, but here's where I'm coming from in regard to that. Nobody in this country is above the law. And I, I, it seems to me that this question was, was answered when Nixon was president. That's, you know, I'm not, you get tired of me saying I'm not a lawyer, but that's the way, that's what common sense tells me. There's a question over there. How are you, Senator? Leon Peace. Um, with respect to the opportunity for tax legislation this year in this political climate, do you think there is a remote possibility of something as small as, say, technical corrections or anything like that? I hope so. Uh, every massive piece of legislation you got, in particular tax, if it is really non-controversial, I think we have a chance of getting it passed. If it does, if it is mixed up with some change of policy, yeah. Uh, I think when you get into the latter, uh, Democrats in the Senate will take the view that uh, that we did, they weren't involved in the passage of our bill, 
so they may not want to help even with technical corrections. But I think if things are very obvious, I think they'd be not meeting their professional responsibilities if they didn't consider some changes. So I think you're going to find at least technical corrections out of Ways and Means Committee, uh, maybe even before the election, and maybe something dealing with uh, with uh, extenders out of Ways and Means. I don't know whether they can come up in the Senate or not, and probably not before the election, though. Let me ask one other question, Senator. Oh, I'm sorry, there was a hand up over here. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure. Hi, I'm Tara Kelly, and I'm a summer intern at the FTC from Pennsylvania. And my question is, how much faith do you have in President Trump's promise to relocate some of that power back to Congress and to drain the swamp, so to speak? Well, let me ask you this. As a, I don't know that when you, I think the president is doing what he can do on his own under existing law, trying to drain the swamp through maybe uh, just one example. Uh, for every new regulation, you got to repeal two. And he would claim to repeal maybe a couple thousand already. Uh, I don't know that he's made any suggestions to us that we ought to change law in regard to draining the swamp, unless you can tell me of some. No. Okay, thank you. You had a question. Yeah, so, so my question is, it seems with all of these investigations going on, the email server, the... Russian investigation, an awful lot is being put on the, the shoulders of the Department of Justice as Inspector General Michael Horowitz, and there are hearings going on in the House and the Senate. You've just had oversight hearings yourself. How, in your opinion, is this process working? Well, it, it kind of works according to who's Inspector General. We have some very good Inspector Generals, and then we have some Inspector Generals probably aren't doing their job, and then there's some that it's even worse when they're intimidated by the people above them, because the inspector general is supposed to be very independent. In the case of Horowitz, even though he was appointed by uh, Obama, I have great confidence in him, and I think he proved that last week uh, when he d delivered an 18-month study that he had, and he's going to do further studies, and who knows when they'll come out, and we don't uh, want to say they got to be out on a certain day because we want them to be done right. But in, he, in him, in his case, I can say I have great confidence in him and it's very successful. And is the committee operating in a bipartisan fashion? Uh, you mean my committee? Yes, your committee or the House uh, committee, based on your observations. Uh, our committee, at least on legislation, is working in a bipartisan way. Uh, from the standpoint of the last Congress, 31 bills got out of our committee. They were all bipartisan bills. Well, so far in the last 18 months, I don't know how many bills, but every bill's got out by overwhelming bipartisan. And uh, 18 of them got to a Democrat president. We've had a few signed by this president. And everyone, so on legislation, bipartisan. When it comes to, um, in, in my committee, you have to have both the Republican and Democrat agree to subpoena. Uh, sometimes we've agreed to subpoena and then didn't have to offer them. And then sometimes we haven't agreed to subpoena. Uh, but we always exchange letters. Senator Feinstein and her group want certain things investigated. If they send them to us and we agree, we sign on. And then we do the same thing there. So we have an exchange of of uh, investigatory goals that we have. I mean, uh, the process is very bipartisan. The outcome may go our separate ways sometimes. 
but more often together. That's great. Well, I know you've got to race back. Oh, do we have time for? Do you have time for one more? Yeah. Or you have got to go. All right, Harry, you get the last question. Uh, thank you very much. Talk, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Terry Miller with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Senator, one of the areas where Congress has delegated an awful lot of regulatory power to the administration is the area of trade. Uh, would you support some of the measures uh, by some of your colleagues like uh, Senator Corker, Senator Lee, Senator Toomey to pull back some of the uh, trade power uh, that's currently with the president into Congress over, over things like uh, new tariffs? On uh, uh, the the answer to start with is no, but then it gets more positive as I go along. Uh, on two thirty two, national security, no. On three hundred one, yes. But overall, I think that I look at at presidential use of this authority, and not too many presidents have done it. But I remember Carter and Reagan and George W. have used some tariffs. And then how I uh, I use them as an example, we always found out that agriculture was the first to be retaliated against. So looking at it not just because of President Trump, but because of other people, I think I've come to the conclusion we need a wholesale look at the 1963 Kennedy bill and the 1974 Nixon or Ford bill. Uh, to uh, to go back and see how much uh, power should be delegated, but I think without a doubt more curbs put on that delegation of authority. So even though I, I erroneously conferred a doctorate upon Senator Senator Grassley, please join me in thanking him.